when Doug and I set out to plant the restoration project, one of the first things that we had to do, and I would say one of the most difficult things that we had to do was come up with a name for what this was going to be. I had some stipulations. Number one, I did not want to use any cool Greek words to name this. I didn't want this church to be called Ecclesia or Ethos or Koinonia or Ego Lego. <laughs> Although we should maybe rethink that. Uh, where do you go to church? Ego Lego. Lego my ego? Okay. I also didn't want the name to be super trendy and I didn't want it to start with the word the. We started kicking around ideas and the creative process eventually led us to talking about our dreams for what this community could be in the future, uh, what we hoped this church and what its members would become. There was a few things that we felt very passionately about at that time and that has actually continued on to this place right now. We felt passionately about bivocational ministry. We both had other jobs. Doug at the time was working at Sears and I was working at Salisbury Christian School. Neither one of those things are realities anymore. Um, but we wanted to continue in our respective fields when we first started. Uh, we thought that working outside of the church would allow us to have conversations with people who didn't know Jesus and have conversations with people who weren't attending church. It would also give us a lot of flexibility with the budget. And in my mind, I think that this was one of the most important things that I was dealing with at the time. We wanted the church to be able to use its finances to help people, both inside the community and outside of the community. And we wanted the church to be able to support local and national and international um, ministries. From our research, most church plants, they spend a lot of money on startup costs, on salaries, and on rent. We have been beyond blessed with rent because both in Bethany and here at Asbury, we only pay $25 a week to be in this space. Just let that kind of sink in and say a quick prayer of thanks for all of the, the kind hearts that have allowed us to, to take over their space for such a small amount of, of money. On average, young churches allot anywhere from 60 to 80% of the budget just to, color, to cover um, salaries and rent. And we didn't want that to be us, especially since we didn't have any outside funding to, to help us when we started. We also knew that many of these young churches actually didn't make it. The amount of church plants that uh, don't see it beyond three years is, is pretty astounding. And I think a lot of times that's because their budgets are so off-centered that there's no way they can create enough momentum by year three to cover the salaries and the rent of the spaces where they're at. Pastors need to support their families and usually when they can't and when the church can't cover that bill, those pastors have to move on and the community, in a sense, comes to an end. In those initial meetings, we also talked a lot about our desire to reach students not students alone, we're very passionate about intergenerational ministry because we realize that students need old people. And by old, I mean anyone who's graduated college. Um, and old people, anyone who's graduated college, needs students. There's like this very symbiotic relationship between the two. One of the strange things that I learned while I was at SCS was a lot of my students didn't attend church, neither did their families. What was even stranger to me, um, and looking back, I shouldn't be so surprised by this, was that many of the students without strong church commitments were some of my favorites. I can say favorites now since I'm not there anymore. They asked really good questions. They didn't accept shallow or easy answers. If I was up front saying something and they didn't believe it, they would call me on it. 
They were a touch skeptical, I kinda liked that, but they weren't put off by conversations about faith, about hope, or about Jesus. It seemed to me that they just wanted something with more depth. They wanted a safe place where they could be honest. They wanted to be able to say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief and not be judged or written off because of it. And Doug and I wanted that too. Even as pastors, you guys know that I kind of wear my heart on my sleeve and um, we talk openly about doubt. In the beginning, we, we were wanting to create a community for doubters and skeptics, for those who had baggage from their former church experiences and for people that had never been compelled by a fundamentalistic approach to faith, that strand of American Christianity that's content with the old adage, God said it, I believe it, and that settles it. Some of our early writings when we were thinking about websites and stuff championed doubt as a core value of the church. It was on our website. We talked about it in membership classes. I preached on it here. I preached on it at Crew. I think that we kind of overstated this point a bit. And in the process, some people challenged us on that and claimed that we asked too many questions and didn't provide enough answers. For the sake of clarity, I want to be very transparent. Our answer has been and always will be Jesus. But admittedly, we were discontent with how this answer gets packaged in, in the past. Jesus is not a quick fix. He's not a cure-all. You don't get a lot of money when you sign up to follow Jesus. I love some of these folks I've seen on TV and I can not remove from my mind this one particular 30-second blurb of a pastor driving up in this really sweet red sports car and as he pulls up, he lowers down the window and says, Jesus rode a colt that's never been rode. You should drive a car that's never been drove. <laughs> and he sped off. <laughs> that's, that doesn't happen. And if it does, I, I it's not happening for me uh, or for most of you, I believe. Um, your relationships when you follow Jesus, they're not necessarily restored. Your prayers aren't always answered in the way that you hope that they will be. So while we believe that Jesus is the answer, he doesn't seem to bring resolve to every issue in our lives, and he certainly doesn't answer every question that we have about Christianity or about the Bible. Life, even for us, even for folks that are adamantly and passionately following Jesus, is filled with tension. And we wanted to allow that to be stated with clarity and in a sense, we wanted to be able to, to celebrate that. When I was a kid, the message of Jesus was reduced to the issue, where are you going to go when you die? Um, it was, as Scott McKnight has observed, it was a decision. It was check this box, raise the hand, come up front when the pastor prompts you by saying, one, two, three, everybody up front. I had, there was this one memory of my Christian school experience where a certain individual would come probably once a month or so and, and he would go through this, I don't want to call it a routine because I believe that he was, he was honest with it and actually this man played a pretty big part of my story but he would always get to the crescendo of his sermon and say, one, that's me, I need Jesus, two, I need Jesus, I'm a sinner, three, run to the altar, run, and it was kind of like this, this thing that happened and, and some people bought into that. 
I don't recall in my past experience any conversations about what faith looked like when your life was a mess or when the world was a mess or when the people that were around you were a mess. I don't even recall anybody in my circle questioning the gospel, at least not out loud. It wasn't an option. It was either you're in or you're out. There was no middle ground. It was either you're the goody-goody who's following Jesus or you're the atheist rebel who smokes cigarettes behind the Wendy's on a high school basketball trip. I don't want to talk about that, okay? Let's just leave that there. For those of us that did accept it as I came to um, my senior year, we all sort of operated on the grounds that we should just put our heads down, read our Bible more, and sin less. That's what the gospel was sort of reduced to. That was the good news for us. It was very private, it was very individualized, and it was very limited in its scope. In hindsight, that approach seems dreadfully wrong to me. It wasn't satisfying. Even then, whether I could frame them or state them out loud, I had questions. I wanted depth. I wanted to talk about the Bible's historical and literary context. I wanted to pursue theological issues, issues like if God is all powerful, then why is there evil in the world? Or if God is all good, then why does he send people to hell? These questions that seem to keep people from following Jesus, I wanted to pursue some of those. Now I've since found some answers to those questions, but when Doug and I were thinking about what church should look like, we wanted to create space for something like this to happen. We wanted it to be a place that allowed people to ask questions in a safe space, a place that encouraged a move beyond decision into discipleship, a place where we talked about Jesus and the gospel in its fullness, not just in that moment of decision, not just in one, two, three, not just in where are you going to go when you die. One of the pivotal moments, I would say, in especially in, in our journey uh, as church planters and maybe even in Doug and I's journey as Christians was a trip that we took to Atlanta. It was a church planting conference that some folks from Remedy um, were going to and it was Doug and Rachel and me and Kate and Andrew and Holly Thompson in a van driving to Atlanta. And one thing for some of you that know Andrew Thompson, uh, he's a pastor over at Remedy which meets downtown, he loves to drive so he wanted to be behind the wheel the entire trip. And for any of you that know me, you know that I do not love to drive in new places. I've told you that if I'm going to say Philadelphia, the entire trip from my, even from the night before until I end up there will be me thinking about where I'm going to park. And like the ulcer is just kind of brewing. I'm like, oh my gosh, I just can't deal with it. Where am I gonna park? It's gonna be so stressful. I don't know what I'm gonna do. So welcome to that uh, <laughs> bit of my life. Um, but this, this trip, it wasn't just a break from reality. It wasn't just the, uh, specifically the, the four of us, Doug and Rachel and Kate and I, we were acting like high schoolers. We stayed up late, like 10, 30, 11, you know, late. And any of you know that Rachel, when she stays up past nine o'clock, all she does is giggle the entire time. Like, so Rachel's just kind of giggling and we are just like enjoying this break from reality. We also have these stories about finding a steak and shake late at night and just going to get cheeseburgers. And for any of you that know anything about 
the glories of a late night steak and shake cheeseburger, you know that it can meld hearts together for a lifetime. Much like it can meld your arteries closed for the rest of your short life. We spent approximately 30 hours together in that van dreaming and thinking and pursuing what a call to church planting might look like. It was a bonding experience. And I think that beyond just being a bonding experience, it seems like we received a vision of what this might look like. That sounds super spiritual. I'm not the type of guy that receives visions. So what that looked like was not us seeing a building or seeing a people. There was no huge sign or divine revelation. Instead, we were reminded on this trip of a message, a simple message that claims the gospel. The story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Two weeks ago, we talked about Jesus' Nazareth sermon while we were in our series on the book of Mark, which we're taking a break from for for the month of, of July. We saw Jesus healing folks and then finally going back to his hometown and preaching a sermon. In Mark's account, it doesn't really tell us much about the sermon, but it tells us the reaction of the people. It's kind of like somewhat skeptical, somewhat um, unsure. They would say things like, isn't this Joseph's kid? Isn't this Mary's kid? Why is he now up here talking about these things? Why should we follow him? It's sort of buried within Mark's gospel. But in Luke, this sermon is removed from the middle of Jesus' ministry and it's placed right in the beginning. This is one of the first things that happens in Luke's gospel with Jesus' ministry. And for Luke, it's his way of saying this is important and in order to understand Jesus, you've got to understand this sermon. Luke chapter four, beginning in verse 16, reads, he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up and on the Sabbath day he went into the synagogue as was his custom. He stood up to read and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. He began by saying to them, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This scene, we can't necessarily put ourselves in it because at the time, these folks would have known, intimately known these verses from Isaiah. This is something that they had been waiting for for centuries to take place and to happen. They were waiting for a day when peace would reign, when God's kingdom would show up in authority, when oppression would cease. And we've seen in the first few chapters of Mark that the way that Jesus was announcing this kingdom and acting this out was not the way that people had expected. Jesus did not come with a sword. He did not end Roman oppression. He came as a servant. He came as a teacher. He came as one who was healing and doing ministry. The thing about this sermon that's often missed, it's not just spiritual in its focus. Jesus is not just announcing a spiritual release or a spiritual recovery or a spiritual liberation for the oppressed. 
that wasn't necessarily good news for people that were in chains and blind and paralyzed. One of the things that struck me most about going through Mark in these first few chapters is the outward signs of Jesus's authority. He brought about outward physical changes in addition to spiritual restoration. He healed people, he fed people, he reintroduced people to the community. He touched the untouchable, the people that were on the margins and the outskirts, he invited them in. He was radically inclusive, he was radically generous. He ate with sinners, drunks, prostitutes, and tax collectors. The people that we hold at arm's length, Jesus had invited them in and he was changing their lives, not just internally, but he was also changing them on the outside. That's what the gospel, the good news, the invasion of the kingdom, whatever you wanna call it, that's what it does. It changes everything. So back to my initial story, Doug and I were kicking around these thoughts, dreaming of what this community could be or should be or how it might look in the future. And Doug sent me a text saying, what do you think about the name The Restoration Project? And I immediately texted back, I hate it. It starts with the, it's super trendy, I don't like it. But we couldn't escape it. We kept coming back to it. We eventually began just to call whatever this is, that name, and then it eventually became the thing. And I remember the first night meeting in Josh Millwood's house, we were going through some of the Gospel of Mark, talking about the kingdom and talking about some of the stuff that I just laid out for you. And I remember thinking to myself, oh, junk, I'm gonna have to tell people what we're calling this, and I'm pretty sure they're gonna hate it, because <laughs> I sort of do. <laughs> And having that internal struggle and then saying it out loud and that's what it became. And that, that's not really the point of, of what we're talking about here, but this name seems to encompass who we're trying to be and it summarizes at least one aspect of this storyline that we see running throughout the Bible. We've said this quite often, but hear it again. We believe that through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, God is restoring all things. And we believe that through Christ, we are invited to be participants in that process. This has totally informed our ministry and hopefully it's informed our lives, not just Doug and I's, but, but yours as well. We proclaim freedom from sin. We proclaim the offer of hope in Jesus and the experience of everlasting life that begins here and now. It's not for you when you die. It's something that takes hold and begins here and now Jesus said, I came to give you life and give you life to the full. He does not say, I came to give you life and life to the full sometime, somewhere out there. It's now, it's here. We celebrate as a community the inward spiritual transformation that's accomplished by a life that's surrendered to Jesus. I think that honestly, we, we celebrate that a little too less than we probably should but we understand that there's a spiritual internal component to this, but we also attempt to live out the gospel in a way that makes a difference in our community. We advocate for justice. We fight for inclusion. We provide a seat at the table for those on the margins. We demonstrate the love of Christ in our deeds, in tangible, physical, even financial and practical ways. Or at least we should. In the early 20th century, stick with me here, 
In the early 20th century, the church disagreed on whether to highlight the inward spiritual realities of the gospel or the outward social manifestations that should result. In very simplistic terms, this conversation encapsulates the conservative liberal divide that dominated the 20th century. The conservatives were reacting against what they deemed to be the bad theology, the bad progressive theology of the liberals, their social gospel, their attempts to do stuff in the world. The conservatives focused instead on defining and protecting the fundamentals of the faith. For them, it was about believing the right things in order to receive personal salvation. On the other side, it was folks who believed it was about doing the right things to embody Jesus' example of sacrifice. And some of these people were so progressive, so liberal, that they would say, eh, Jesus, maybe he died, maybe he didn't, doesn't really matter, we should, we should live that out. So we have two very distinct pictures of the very conservative folks over here that are trying to build a wall around who they are and the very liberal folks over here that are just wanting to build soup kitchens and homeless shelters and to do the work of ministry without necessarily um, thinking much, that's a, that's a very broad overstatement, thinking correctly about theology. And left on their own, both of these visions are incomplete. In many ways, these two strands, though, they've continued to represent the polar opposites within American Christianity into this place where we are today. We still see very conservative folks and we see very liberal folks that are fighting, in a sense, for the same things. For most of us, I think that we're only now beginning to realize that the church must be the church for the sake of the world not just for those who enter into this place. Back in the day, it used to be you you'd do these big outreaches, you try to get people to come into the church, but in the last 10 years or so, one of the buzzwords is missional, where we go out and we be the church to other people. We're only beginning to learn that the church must take its gospel into the streets, not with a bullhorn, not with tracks. We take the gospel into the streets with shovels, with a meal, and with a 501c3 application. The gospel changes everything. Over the next few weeks, we wanna talk about what this might look like. It's going to be reductionistic, and I apologize in advance for that. At the outset, though, I wanna be clear, it's not my intent to juxtapose this spiritual dynamic of the gospel, this personal salvation, this forgiveness of sins with an outward expression of doing work. That's not my intent. My intent is for us to begin to see that these two things need to be married together in order for us to truly understand what this is about. For many of us, I feel that we have been on one or the other side of this extreme. We've either been over here reading our Bibles and praying, asking for forgiveness and trying so hard to sin less, but it doesn't impact the world around us. And we've had other people over here that are so involved with Habitat for Humanity, building houses, digging trenches, going on missions trips, doing things that they're not necessarily concerned about the king who is ruling over all of that. There's a guy named uh, Ken Witzma who writes this, and this is gonna sort of frame our discussions over the next few weeks. He's a pastor in Bend, Oregon. Um, he's also one of the founders of a, a conference called the Justice Conference. It's been going for five or six years. It's gaining a lot of traction because this topic of justice, which is where we'll be, is super trendy right now. This is not why we're talking about it. I actually think that this has something to do with 
the faith that we profess, but I wanna read you some of his thoughts. It says, justice is the single best word both inside and outside the Bible for capturing God's purposes for the world and humanity's calling in the world. Justice is, in fact, the broadest, most consistent word the Bible uses to speak about what ought to be. And it has been used throughout the centuries by Christians and non-Christians alike to describe vital areas of human and divine concern. To do justice means to render to each what is due. Justice involves harmony, flourishing, and fairness, and it is based on the image of God in every person, the imago Dei, that grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. These phrases stick out to me. Phrases like, what ought to be, rendering to each what is due, harmony, flourishing, and fairness. Oftentimes when we think about a concept like justice, we focus on just punishing wrongdoers. We talk about justice being served. We read comics about the Justice League that show up and wreak havoc in a good way, in a very good way, to, to restore uh, proper balance of the world. And indeed, that is a very important aspect of justice according to the Bible. But I want us to begin to consider the recipients of injustice, those who have been disallowed harmony and flourishing and fairness. And I would like us to consider this as well. I would like us to begin to think about the role that we may have played in their subjugation. The ways in which we have forgotten the radical truth that we are all created in the image and likeness of God. The truth that Witzma rightly claims grants all people inalienable dignity and infinite worth. Cornell West writes, justice is what love looks like in public, which begs the question, what does our love look like? For those who still might need some convincing on where we're going, uh, that this is actually a part of our calling as followers of Jesus to be advocates of justice, hear the word of the Lord. And I, this isn't usually our approach, but I'm just gonna kinda slam you with a bunch of different verses here, okay? This is Deuteronomy 10. So circumcise your hearts and stop being so stubborn because the Lord your God is the God of all gods and the Lord of all lords, the great, mighty, and awesome God who doesn't play favorites and doesn't take bribes. He enacts justice for the orphans and widows, and he loves immigrants, giving them food and clothing. Deuteronomy 27, cursed is anyone who obstructs the legal rights, the mishpat, that's the same word as justice in the previous passage, the mishpat, the justice, the legal rights, what is due to these people of the immigrants, the orphans, and the widows, cursed are those people. Isaiah 1, in a complete, I don't think rant is too far off of a word in Isaiah 1 of the atrocities of Israel as God's people and the things that they are doing. In the midst of that dialogue, it says, remove your ugly deeds from my sight, put an end to such evil, learn to do good, seek justice, help the oppressed, defend the orphan, plead for the widow. Jeremiah 22, the Lord proclaims, do what is just and right. And here we see a comparison between the mishpat, the justice, the, the right doing, and um, righteousness. 
tzedakah, these two words are usually held in tension together in the Hebrew Bible. Do what is just and right. Rescue the oppressed from the power of the oppressor. Don't exploit or mistreat the refugee, the orphan, and the widow. Don't spill the blood of the innocent in this place. I hope that as you're hearing these passages, this is a very ancient context, but these qualifiers, the orphan, the widow, the immigrant, the poor, this is our context. The refugees, those that have been trafficked, care about establishing justice. Micah 6, this is probably the most quoted text with regard to justice. It says, he has told you, human one. You might see in some translations, he has told you, O man or O mortal, what is good and what the Lord requires of you, the summary statement of what is good and what the Lord is requiring of you is this, to do justice, to embrace faithful love, and to walk humbly with your God. Psalm 146, last text. The person whose help is the God of Jacob, the person whose hope rests on the Lord their God is truly happy. God, the maker of heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, God, who is faithful forever, who gives justice to people who are oppressed, who gives bread to people who are starving, the Lord who frees prisoners, the Lord who makes the blind see, the Lord who straightens up those who are bent low, the Lord who loves the righteous, the Lord who protects the immigrants, who helps orphans and widows, but who makes the way of the wicked twist and turn. Tim Keller summarizes the biblical teaching that's presented here in this way. He said, God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power, and so should we. That is what it means to do justice. In one sense, this indicates that we should become advocates for those who need our help. The quartet of the vulnerable, as some scholars would refer to it, the widows, the orphans, the immigrants, and the poor. In our context, this refers to the orphans, the widows, the immigrants, and the poor. But we could also add to this list the single moms without help, those who are bullied at their school or at their place of work, those who are abused physically sexually or verbally. Those who suffer under racial inequality and systemic prejudice. The unemployed. The people who are not just milking the system, as some of us will say very casually, but those who can't get past the first interview despite their many, many attempts to do so the handicapped who are treated differently and looked at differently and not afforded the same opportunities as others, those who are alone or feel unwanted or unloved. We could describe countless other people that we, in a sense, are called to love and to defend, to do justice on their behalf. If you looked at Facebook recently over the last couple of weeks, it seems that much of the church has reverted back to this practice of building up its walls, to protecting its own, 
Sadly, in many contexts, the church has become reticent to look outside of its buildings to the issues behind the issues, the issues of racism and prejudice, the issues of intolerance, the issues where we could potentially become agents of change, agents of restoration, agents of hope. The world that we live in is broken, both here in America and abroad. A lot of times it's it's struck me that as we think about our own internal struggles over the past couple weeks, um, we seem to forget very easily the atrocities that are taking place elsewhere. And I don't want us to put things on like a hierarchy and try to figure out which is the most important, but it seems in America we're very nearsighted to the issues of the day. While there are hints of heaven that's invading earth, while there are hints of the church being the church and that being a beautiful thing, we collectively have been tasked with the responsibility as followers of Jesus to love and to defend those with the least economic and social power because that's what God does. I wanna be clear on this. This isn't a cause. This isn't a call to arms. This isn't political. It shouldn't be fleeting. It's a life that we're called to live. Doing justice must involve living justly. We talked about these two words, mishpat and tzedakah. They often appear together in the Old Testament, justice and righteousness. And some have argued that mishpat refers to rectifying justice. It's punishing wrongdoers and it's also caring for the victims of injustice. But it's complement, tzedakah, that righteousness, It refers to primary justice. According to Tim Keller, this is behavior that if it was prevalent in the world would render rectifying justice completely and utterly unnecessary because everyone would be living in right relationship with everyone else. That's the point of righteousness as it's described in the Bible. When we think about righteousness, we think inherently about not looking at porn, not cussing, not smoking this or smoking that. We, we, we boil it down to these sins. However, this idea of, of righteousness includes relationships. It includes treating people with their inherent dignity and worth. It includes this idea of living rightly. It's not just sinning less. That is an important part. Do not mishear me. But there's another component to this, a positive component to this. I think that what it boils down to for me as we introduce this talk on justice, the question that I wanna ask today, is this our story? Are we contributing collectively or individually to the care and concern for the vulnerable? And if so, do they realize it? I say that because a lot of times our care and concern for the vulnerable, while admirable and helpful, at times is reduced to the orphan that we are sponsoring whose picture lives on our refrigerator. That $20 that leaves our bank account each month that we might not even know disappears. That we don't even feel it when it, when it goes to help these people. And don't misunderstand me, that's an important task, but do the people that we're helping even realize that this is something that we care about? Are we contributing to a world where we are living in right relationship with everyone around us? Does this extend beyond the confines of the people who who share our table on a regular basis? 
Would our neighbors look at us and agree with the statement that we are establishing right relationships with them? Would our coworkers agree that we are establishing right relationships with them? Would our family agree that we are establishing right relationships with them? Having said all this, there's a tendency when we're talking about justice to be motivated by guilt, to shame people into giving more money, more time, more of themselves. And while I would love for all of us to give more money and more time and more of ourselves, I don't want to use those as the tools that get us there. It's not my intent to coerce through guilt and shame, but I do think it's important for us to begin to self-assess, to begin to look at ourselves in the mirror and to see where we fit on this scale of inward, individualized, spiritual relationship with Jesus, outward, ditch digging, house building, there's not much of a component of Jesus involved here, somewhere in the middle where we're trying to bring those two things together. Jesus says, a good tree doesn't produce bad fruit, nor does a bad tree produce good fruit. Each tree is known by its own fruit. People don't gather figs from thorny plants, nor do they pick grapes from prickly bushes. A good person produces good from the good treasury of the inner self, while an evil person produces evil from the evil treasury of the inner self. The inner self overflows with words that are spoken. What does the fruit of our lives look like? What does the fruit of the restoration project look like? Is it consistent with the call to do justice, to embrace faithful love and to walk humbly with our God? Put another way, has the gospel changed anything in us at all? Has the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus so captivated us that we go beyond the walls of our sanctuary to share the good news. Good news of spiritual restoration, of forgiveness of sins, and the hope that we have in Christ. But also, good news that is truly good because it changes its audience, it changes us to care, to love, and to do justice.